If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Ali. Ali lives in Melbourne with her son, Quinn, and has just released her book, Inconceivable. It's a memoir of her story to become a solo mum by choice. Welcome to the podcast tonight, Ali. I would love to start by understanding what led you to make the decision to become a solo mum by choice. Good question. Well, it's the short answer is I was 39 and I hadn't found a relationship. Um, so it was really kind of felt like a now or never moment. I'd been dating for a few years since my last long-term relationship had ended and that was because he wasn't ready yet to have kids. Yeah. So I was really I w- it was really clear from the end of that relationship that I knew that I wanted to meet someone who was willing to have children and who was the right person to have children with. And I didn't want to date for sperm, you know, and <laughs> just settle for someone who I knew wasn't right but they could provide me with a baby because I could see how that could potentially implode in the future. Yeah. So it was a, it, I mean, it was a really a, a decent few years of making the decision sort of from the end of my relationship um, to going, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So it, yeah, I, I'd say I, I thought about it for about two, two and a half years. And in that time mm-hmm. I was dating as well. So I was kind of pursuing all my options at the same time, going to the fertility clinic, having a counselling session, seeing if I should do this, talking to the specialist, thinking about different sperm donor options, also dating at the same time. So I think that's something I often say to people who ask me about it, you know, who are looking for advice, is that you don't have to sort of shut out one avenue of your life. You don't have to stop dating because you're pursuing this idea or kind of exploring whether it's possible because I think it's good to have information is power knowledge is power so it's good to know what your options are about the fertility journey and I mean having said that that's complicated because sometimes that can also stress you out and make you think oh god I'm never gonna get pregnant and it's impossible and the doctor says I'm over 35 so my chances are you know whatever percent but in my case I felt like I kind of pursued those two things in tandem and that 
was important for me because I didn't want to give up dating. I didn't want to give up on the idea of romance and love. And I was very wedded to that. Like I think a lot of us are because the romantic narrative is pretty strong. Mm. And so was there a point where you went, okay, I have to give up on that for now and I'm really going to do this? Was there a, a light bulb moment or did it just kind of naturally happen to that? I was at a party talking to a guy about finance and <laughs> I didn't put this in the book that I've written, but it was a kind of a light bulb moment. We were having this slightly drunken conversation and I was saying, oh, I've got, you know, some money in a super fund in the US because I had lived there for 10 years and I was saying, I don't know if I should take it out or bring it here or, you know, it's not very much money, but maybe I could use it to freeze my eggs. And I said, but, you know, I'm also dating this guy and I don't know if I should, you know, just wait to see if that. <laughs> this was a very intense conversation I was having with a random stranger at a party. I love those. And um, it was one of those house parties where you just get real deep real fast. Yeah. And I said, I don't know if I should do that, but, you know, I really want to have a baby. And, you know, I'm thinking about whether I should do it on my own. And he, he worked in finance, so I was asking him sort of like, should I take the money out and use it to freeze my eggs or should I, what should I do with it? And he, he told me this long, elaborate story and the sort of, moral of it was like why wait for something that you already know you want now yeah when you don't know what's going to happen later so you don't know if this relationship's going to pan out you you don't know if you really feel that strongly about this guy but you do know very strongly that you want to have a baby essentially was what he was saying and it, it was a light bulb moment I just thought oh I'm waiting for something I'm waiting for what you know I'm waiting for something to become clear I'm waiting for something to change I'm waiting for a man to suddenly be the love of my life I'm waiting for someone else's permission I'm waiting for so many things but I actually know very clearly what I want and I've known what I want this whole time this whole mm. all these years so I'm just gonna I'm gonna do that and I'm not saying I didn't go on any dates after that because I did but <laughs> But I did, from then I was like, okay, I'm going to the clinic and I, I'm like making the appointment, I'm doing that, I'm going through the next, you know, pursuing the next steps. And it was funny because I called the patient liaison at um, Melbourne IVF and I had changed my mind about three times. I had said, oh, no, I'm going to freeze my eggs. Oh, no, I'm going to do it on my own. Oh, no, I'm going to freeze my eggs. And I kept calling her back every few months and she said, oh, what are we going to do with you? <laughs> I said I was going to finally have a baby on my own and I just had to, sort of put a lid on my rage because I just thought, you know what, it's not like buying a fucking pair of shoes. Like yeah. this was a major life decision. And she was, you know, she was just make, trying to make light of it. But I thought, well, yeah, I have changed my mind a number of times because this is huge and yeah. it's okay to kind of pre prevaricate and try and, and think about it and explore your options and change your mind. And, <laughs> and that's probably how I make decisions. Apart from like shopping, you know, I'm really decisive about shopping, but then, big life decisions, I think, take me longer and take most of us longer. We just kind of evolve through them and they take the time they take. You can't really rush them. Especially when it's creating a whole new human. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you went through Melbourne IVF for your treatment in the end? Yeah, I did. Um, I had a really good experience there with Kate Stern as my specialist who is a bloody genius and a little firecracker of a woman I think she just got an OAM or something for her services to the fertility industry and her groundbreaking work um she's amazing and she was just really positive and she just said you know we're just going to get this done <laughs> like she was like head down bum up you know 
And I kind of liked that attitude. It was just like, right, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, and she was like, you know, make sure you have mental health supports in place, make sure you have this in place. You know, she was pragmatic. She wasn't just sort of like wishy-washy. She wasn't just sort of saying, oh, it'll just happen. She was saying like, it could be tricky, but let's just do it. Um, And I was very, very, very lucky in that my first IUI worked. So it was kind of a wonder. Yeah experience and did you do a lot of research before you went with the clinic or did you got a friend's recommendation or what made you decide to go with them I went with Melbourne IVF because I think it was probably the closest clinic to me and you know I knew it had a good reputation my dad is a surgeon and he had rooms in the same building Mm -hmm. and when I told my parents that I was going to pursue this path I said to him, oh, I've been going to Melbourne IVF, but I don't know if I'm seeing the right specialist. And I knew, you know, the medical community is very small and incestuous. And I said, is there anyone you'd recommend? And I sent him the website with a list of all the specialists. And he said, go to see Kate. She's the best. And, and you know, she and I, he, you know, she referred patients to him and vice versa kind of thing. So I just felt very comforted by that. There's something very nice about your dad sort of, giving you his medical opinion about the whole experience. And then when my, my first appointment with her, so I switched, I was seeing a different specialist who was fine and great, whatever. But, you know, I was like, oh, well, dad knows Kate and that feels good. Um, I was sitting in the waiting room in the cafe and dad was sitting with me because he'd come down from upstairs and Kate came out and she said, oh, Neil, and, you know, she gave him a hug. It was just, it was like, I was like, this is the right decision. It feels like it's connected to my family and that it's, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of history, I guess, with my parents being doctors of me feeling like you you trust them implicitly for mm. your kind of medical advice. So, and it did work out luckily because Kate said, oh, I bumped into your dad. This was after I got pregnant. And I didn't know whether I should say anything. I didn't know whether it was public. I didn't say anything because, you know, obviously confidentiality. She's like, I didn't tell him anything, but does he know? And I was like, yeah, yeah, he knows. But <laughs> it was that sort of thing. It was kind of lucky it all worked out in a way because she did know him. And I'm sure, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure it's awkward for doctors all the time when stuff doesn't work out and they know each other. But, yeah, so I just felt good about it. I felt like, and she's very warm, very caring and I think for me, it's not important for everyone, but for me that kind of energy was what I wanted to be around when I was trying to get pregnant, when I was doing something that felt so emotional. That sounds like your parents were obviously pretty supportive um, about your decision. Well, I have to read uh-huh. the book, Alicia. Um, don't want to be, do, do too many spoilers on this story. <laughs> so I, well, that's a complicated question. My family was not very pro me pursuing this journey at the beginning. So we had a lot of struggles with it, Um, quite a bit of conflict around it. And I've just written a memoir, which I've mentioned, um, which talks about this in depth. But, and my mum has read the book now. Um, It hasn't come out yet. But she said to me, oh, it wouldn't be very interesting without me in it. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're laughing about that because she's basically the antagonist in the book. She's kind of the villain. Yeah. So in a way she was one of the obstacles to me pursuing this path because she felt very differently about it. But, of course, as soon as there's a child in the picture, a real live human being, a baby, people uh, react very differently because 
you know, most people love a baby and my parents love him and my son and he's their first grandchild. So they're, they've done a bit of a 180 on the whole thing, I would say. I mean, I, that said, I'm sure we have slightly different ideals around it and perspectives on it and um, sometimes sometimes there's still conversations that happen that I think I don't entirely agree with. Okay. Um, but on the whole, you know, my mum has said, we're so glad you did this, you know. He's brought us so much joy and um, I think it has all worked out now. Like is anyone going through this who is concerned about their parents' responses or not getting the support they need? Obviously go buy the book and see what you've been through and it has all worked out in the end. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's not an uncommon story because a friend of mine read it and she was having a similar battle with her family and she said, oh, this is just completely, and, you know, her family were totally different background to my family. It wasn't about, you know, they were from a different religious background. There were so many things that were not similar about our lives and our families, and yet she was encountering the same resistance. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is relatable. I think I hope it is relatable to people. And I think what I learnt was, and a lot of the solo mums that I met in the support group said this, that there's kind of a coming out process that happens with to borrow, you know, queer terminology when you tell the people around you, especially your parents, that you're going to have a child on your own without a partner. You know, you've already spent, like I'd spent years thinking about it. They need to kind of come to grips with it as well. There's sort of a mourning process for them as well if they wanted a certain life for you. And, you know, I think their intentions were good with my parents and most people's parents. They want you to be happy, you know, they and they think and happiness is a partner or a husband or, you know, whatever. So I think it comes from a good place, but it's kind of rooted in a sort of conservatism and, um, a certain, you know, way of viewing how we're allowed to parent or not. Yeah. Did you find the same response from your friends or were they all really supportive? No, my friends were mainly supportive and, yeah, I, I got a few strange comments from people but it wasn't, and it's funny because some of those people have since said to me oh you made totally the right decision like you were ahead of the curve on that because now I'm single and I'm you know almost 44 or whatever and I wish that you know I think I should have done something like that so which has been kind of vindicating um but yeah no on the whole most my closest friends were all no one said anything um mostly you know I think the thing about friends is if they're good friends they listen to you and they take into consideration what you're saying and they don't then provide a series of judgments about it they or critiques they sort of you know take it in and see that that's the decision that you want to make and and I think there's you know there's the kind of friend who just sort of goes oh well I disagree here's my unsolicited advice about that and so I tr- I tend to try to avoid those people <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> not someone you're going to call a friend anymore no yeah exactly um not that you know friends don't necessarily state opinions that annoy you sometimes of course they do but yeah I found myself gravitating towards the people who are like oh interesting okay tell me more about that like what what's how's that going to work and why do you want to do that and you know 
they were sort of curious about it as a po- and or they were just like great you know and I was like yeah that's the attitude I want is people to be like really supportive or curious and willing to kind of go along the journey yeah. and a lot of my friends I don't know about you but they they are they were well not all of them are but some of them are single women who've don't have kids um, because, you know, I had friends like that. I always had friends with kids, but I had sort of, you. Keep, I think when you're single and you don't have kids, you kind of keep a core group of people who are single and don't have kids because you can all live the same kind of life together. You know, you can go out, you can go to movies at night, you can do things, you know, that we can't do now. Um, <laughs> because and of those friends gone. Remember those days? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we had sort of similar, tra- we had, we were having similar struggles with dating. And so they were like, yeah, I get why you're doing that. You know, they didn't necessarily want to have kids that way or pursue that path or they went, didn't feel strongly enough about having children to do that. But they understood the shit dating. Um, yeah. So lucky enough to get pregnant on your first IUI, how did you find choosing your sperm donor? Was that what you thought it would be or? I felt like the choice at the time felt quite limited. There was about 10 people on the IUI list and, you know, of course that didn't feel like enough at the time. But then in retrospect, I think having a limited amount of choice was good. Mm. Um, You know, we're kind of drowning in this choice that we seem to have online. It seems like we're we're overwhelmed by choice when it comes to online dating, even though the choices don't seem like that that great. There's a sort of endless carousel, you know, of humans. And it's it was the opposite of that because there were only 10 men to choose from, which wasn't, oh, I'll keep swiping, swiping, swiping. And I, you know, I logged in and out over a series of weeks and read people's profiles and thought, no, 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 no. And then a new donor showed up and, you know, he seemed nice. He seemed straightforward and kind and we didn't share any of this. You know, I didn't, he wasn't a genetic carrier for cystic fibrosis, which I am. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought, you know, what am I waiting for? This this guy seems great. He seems fine. Like it it wasn't like, oh, my God, fireworks went off. This is amazing. I was like, great, this is a good choice and I'm just going to make the choice. Like stop sort of penduluming back and forth, just make the decision. So that was kind of how I did it in the end. Um, And a lot of people had said to me, you know, once you have a baby, it doesn't really matter to you that much who the donor is. You don't sort of think, oh, God, I really regret choosing that donor because, of course, you have your child and you love your child no matter what, and your child feels fated in a way. You know, it feels like this is the child you were meant to have. That's what parenting is in a strange way. I think everyone feels like that even when they don't use a donor. You know, so there's this weird fatalism to it like a positive kind of fatalism to it where it's like oh this is this is the person that's my person yeah the and amount of people who are like I wish I'd started later but at the same time I don't because then I'd have a different child and it's exactly like, you can't change history it's that's the person that you have yeah so pretty easy getting pregnant was it a pretty easy pregnancy as well uh yeah I mean it was relatively I was very like I was nauseous for till about 17 weeks and then my second trimester was probably the best time I think I made the mistake doing too much um I went to New York to work on a musical that was getting a production oh wow um yeah that I had written which I'd been working on for about eight years with this composer in New York when I lived there and so then we ironically got a production 
which was coincided with my second trimester of my pregnancy. And at the time when I was trying to get pregnant, I thought, well, you know, I probably won't get pregnant. You know, it'll, it'll might take a few goes and it's not going to, that's not going to coincide with that. You know, it just seemed sort of like, oh, well, I have to keep sort of, it's the same with dating. It's like, I've got to keep moving forward with my life. I can't sort of arrest everything and stop and think, oh no, I can't work. I can't do anything because I might get pregnant. Yeah. But I wouldn't, <laughs> yeah, if I were ever pregnant again, or if I did it, could do it over, I would say to myself, just do less, like don't travel internationally and go through the grueling schedule of doing, going to rehearsals every day and dealing with tech. And it's very, being in theatre is a very stressful medium. It's, you know, there was a lot of fundraising. There was a lot of, it's just, it's just a high anxiety. Not a lot of rest. <laughs> no. And, and just, it's a high stakes environment in a way because it's like we've got four weeks, you know, it was something like three weeks to rehearse the show, get it up, and it was a big deal. It was at a big theatre. It was huge career opportunity, so I didn't want to miss it. It felt like, oh, God, I can't miss this. It just happened to have coincided with my pregnancy. Um, but, of course, by the time I got to the end of it, I was so exhausted and I couldn't really walk because I kind of, you know, my pelvis was in a lot of pain. So I... Yeah, I th- that was that was tricky. And then um, third trimester, you know, I came back. I was okay, but I just couldn't walk very far, so that was uncomfortable. But luckily, I went into labour at thirty-seven weeks, the day I finished work, my day job. So but actually, I was relieved because I couldn't walk. So and as soon as he was out, I could walk again. Yeah, maternity leave wouldn't be that fun then. Yeah. No, I was thinking I've got three weeks to set everything up, and I was like, mm, but I also can't actually walk more than ten steps. So it would, you know, and you know what it's like by the end. You're just so uncomfortable. You know, it was that kind of thing where if I wanted to roll over in the middle of the night, I have to get my hands and knees, and just wasn't. It just wasn't comfortable. So I was happy to go into labour, and once he was out, I felt much better. <laughs> and did you find out you were having a boy, or wait for a surprise? Yeah, no, I found out. I'm too curious. I can't. I'm not able to. I'll sit on that kind of information. <laughs> I don't have that capacity. And so early days of motherhood with just you and him, how did it go? It was great because I went and stayed with my parents for the first three months mm-hmm. and they invited me to stay with them just after I'd given birth. They came to the hospital and they said, maybe you should come stay with us. And I was sort of in this daze and I was thinking, oh, yeah, whatever, you know, like, Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I won't do that. And my doula said to me, she was sitting by the bed, she said after they'd left the room, go and stay with them. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, sure. And, you know, I didn't totally understand, of course, until another few hours or another 24 hours that that was exactly the right decision to go and stay and be supported because you can't really move when you're breastfeeding. You need someone to bring you water and food and, you know, to hold the baby for a minute so you can go to the bathroom and... (laughs) Um, you're just so immobilized and they were very generous and supportive and helpful so it was a kind of interesting twist in the story where they um, really stepped up and I knew they would be helpful I, I had a sense that they would once the baby came but I think that in a way that was above and beyond maybe I don't know I mean I think it's a smart thing to do if you're having a baby on your own. You know, you know this, your mum's living nearby. Um, and you know what a massive difference that makes just to be in proximity to, to your village of people. And 
in the past, people would have been all in one house together, multi-generations, mm-hmm. raising a baby. And it's a really good way of doing it. It's just, it's such a, it was such a godsend, honestly. It was really incredible. I mean, it was, of course, it was really hard those first three months. They're really hard, but it was so much easier not being home by myself. Yeah. And so how old's your son now? He's three. He's three. And how's life with him at that age? Three is a tough age, I'm finding. I felt like everyone said to me, terrible twos, terrible twos, you're really going to suffer, you know. Um, people have a lot of schadenfreude around parenting. They love to tell you how miserable you're going to be. And <laughs> <laughs> and I was two was fine and uh, three is just a lot more dramatic. You know, the emotions are very intense and there's more tantrums and there's more sort of, no, me do it, me do it, I do it, me do it, you know. <laughs> not you, not you, baby. Uh, there's a lot of that. But, of course, the other thing about it, on the other side of it, I love that he can now communicate and mm. we can talk about things and he's so imaginative, you know, they're so imaginative three-year-olds and the way they perceive the world and the things that they come up with and the things they say are very delightful. And so there's a lot of joy I think at three and there's a lot of joy in moving past the baby stage where, you know, they can only sort of make sounds at you and then them being able to actually speak in full sentences and start to comprehend the world. So it's a really fun age. And it's also, I think a really tough age as a parent. It's I've found maybe I can't remember and I've just repressed the past, but I found three to be one of the most challenging ages so far. Um, Yeah. When you look at it, though, is it what you thought it would be when you went into doing this on your own or? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's so hard to really visualise what your life is going to be like with a child. You know, you can have a sort of idea, there's sort of this like hazy fantasy about it. You know, I liked, I've always liked hanging out with kids. I like babies. You know, I, but it's very experiential parenting. You sort of, you don't know until you know, until you've done it. So mm-hmm. I'd say in some ways it's even more incredible than I would have ever expected. And in other ways it's even harder than I would have ever expected. Yeah. So it's sort of both of those things at the same time. It's, you know, the love that you feel for your child is sort of almost terrifying and it's enormity. <laughs> and, you know, it can feel sort of, breathtaking, gobsmacking, how much you love them and how important they are to you and also so scary on the other side of that because you're responsible for this life and keeping it alive. And my son does wild things like just will scoot across the road, you know, without stopping sometimes, even though every other time he stopped, you know, there's just those hair-raising moments as a parent where you just your heart is in your throat, you know, and you think, God, how am I going to get them to 18? Like how am I going to get them to 18? And then when I do get them to 18, what about when they go overseas and, you know, like, What's going to happen there? You know, there's just, it doesn't end, I don't think, that sort of fear of like this precious life that you have created and you've got to keep it going and keep it moving away from you as well, which is very strange. Yeah, and then on the other side of it, there's all this, like there's a wonderful thing about having that kind of love in your life and having that sort of sense of meaning and purpose and, yeah. And are you thinking you might try and add a sibling in the future or are you one and done no no I mean if I had been 10 years younger and 
like some of the solo mums you and I have spoken to. Um, I would definitely have thought about having another child, but not on my own. Mm -hmm. I think it's too tricky for me. I have an artistic career, which means that I sort of have another baby. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have this thing that sort of drains my resources, takes a lot of my time and energy, doesn't always give me a lot back, um, but sometimes does, you know, is ecstatic and also exhausting. So I think if you've got artistic ambitions, it's, very hard to have that kind of artistic career which doesn't always compensate you a lot and have two children you know having one child I can kind of just manage it it's just enough of a juggle that I'm not losing my mind because I can do some paid work some other paid work that gets me by enough you know I do a lot of copywriting and then my own writing like the book or screenwriting or that sort of stuff you know I can fit that in because I've got just enough time with the one kid and you know and also only work part-time with those two things happening. Well, I, you know, I work four days out of the five, I guess. So, and after hours, as you will well know many times mm-hmm. um, after he's in bed. But, yeah, I, I I did go through a kind of grieving process at, you know, probably about a year old because I thought, oh, I'm just, I just can't have another baby. You know, it's just not going to happen. It's too, too hard. And I don't want that hardness. Like, this is enough hardness. <laughs> this is enough exhaustion. This is enough. And I think, you know, I'm very ambitious and I want to have a career and I want to I want to be part of the world and the adult world and I want to write and I want to be in conversation with adults and um, to be part of that world. And I just sort of came to the realisation that adding another baby into that would not be financially viable to keep a, an artistic career alive at the same time. I thought misguidedly perhaps, but maybe this was, you know, partly COVID's fault that I would maybe meet someone after having my first and then I would have another one. Oh, no big deal. But, you know, it's sort of ironic that I thought that because I'd been dating for all these years and hadn't met the first person. So why did I think I was just going to suddenly turn around and meet someone else like three minutes later? I think that was still the there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble out there because that can happen. It does happen to people. Um, but because we went into two years of lockdown, we didn't see anyone, so dating wasn't really in much of an option anyway. And when you're a single parent, as you know, I was going to say, have you found time for dating now? <laughs> where is the time to date? Yeah, and I think you don't really. I, I went on some dates maybe around when my son was around 18 months old. I felt like that was the first time I kind of emerged. Mm-hmm. So I actually kind of came out of the hazy bubble of like exhaustion and, and where am I and breastfeeding and everything and um, and went, oh, I'm actually a human, like a human, I've got a human body and I'm a person, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I can go on some dates and I went on some very mediocre dates online and thought, oh, okay, this is, hasn't changed much. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it takes a while to come out of that baby haze and then, and then sort of things change again and it, it sort of got harder to date again. I don't know why. I guess because the evening routine changed and got later and I thought, well, I can't go out after the, you know, it's too late or it just, so it is tricky, I think, to find time to date. Oh, I th- Part of it was also my parents were taking him once a week on a Saturday night. He was staying over most weeks during COVID because they were oh, just lucky. Yeah. Yeah, it was really great. And then they stopped doing that because 
COVID ended and they went away, started going on holidays and doing things and going out of town and going out and whatever. Yeah, they have a life. I know, they have a life. And <laughs> so that was no guarantee anymore. But that was sort of, that was a way of having a social life to a degree, um, even though we couldn't really socialise. But it was, yeah. Um, I can't remember your original question now, but yes, no, there will, there will be no other child. But... And, you know, it's that weird thing in your brain where you think, never say never, but I'm 43 now and the time is time is an hour, time is a ticking. So, you know, I got pregnant the first time, but now it's three years later and there's just no guarantee that, you know, I just wouldn't have necessarily the same chance and I'd have to do IVF, which mm. costs a lot more money. And... Um, you know, there's no guarantee. And I feel like I got lucky, so I should just accept my good fortune and move on, you know, rather than trying to roll the dice of IVF, which as I've witnessed in many of the women around us in our community can be really traumatic and painful and financially, you know, depleting. Mm. So I don't really want to put myself through something that could be potentially traumatic when I've just sort of been given this like one lucky strike and it's like, well, just just take that and just accept it and be grateful for it. And maybe my hope is that perhaps if I do meet someone, they will have kids and we will have a blended family and Quinn will have step siblings or something. And you know, we do have donor siblings. So I don't think it's the end of a bigger family. It's just not going to be one that comes from my womb. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've got donor siblings. Have you done anything about meeting any of those? Yes, we've met up with one solo mom who I connected with via Vata through the voluntary register. Mm-hmm. And she has a uh, around a one-year-old girl. So that has been really lovely. She is just as keen to meet with us as we were to meet with her and we've tried to meet up. We've met a couple of times and we're trying to meet sort of every six months, whatever, because we don't live that close to each other. But um, I feel really good about that, that they have are getting to know each other from a young age and everything that I've read about donor conceived children is that it's important for their sense of identity to be connected to their genetic relatives and, I think it's a real gift to them to know each other from a young age. And there's also this other sort of screwed up thing where they're less likely to have romantic partnerships with their siblings as adults if they've known each other. It's important. uh, Yeah, which is creepy. And so I want to avoid that. Um, So I think that would be fairly disturbing. And to find out that you were related (laughs) to someone that you were dating and... I really hope we can meet more of them. I know there are other siblings and I hope those parents put their name on the register. I, One of the things I'm thinking a lot about and I hope to write about at some point is how beneficial those relationships are for your children. You know, I think a lot of the time parents think, oh, but I don't need to do that. They're strangers. They've got nothing to do with us. Or, you know, we have our own family. We don't we don't need those people. We don't need to be connected or, you know, it's irrelevant. They have a different parent. Uh, or there's a fear around it, a fear around the strangers, which I understand. There can be a sort of hesitancy about letting other people into your life um, just because you happen to use the same donor. But I think the way we need to think about it as parents 
is we need to think about our children and what they need, not what our hesitancy is. Like, sure, we need to protect them and we need to be careful with them and, you know, vet people before we meet up with them or, you know, vet people as we progress in our relationship with them. Maybe we will meet some people and they're not the right people to be around. Maybe the parents are not the people we want to be around. But I think it's good to at least let your child connect with those siblings and have the option to do that. Like I feel really strongly about that. I read a book about donor conception, which was quite harrowing, and the author who'd found out she was donor conceived quite late, you know, sort of discovered she had siblings and it really gave her a sense of peace and a sense of belonging and I guess because I there's no guarantee that we're going to have a relationship with the donor in you know we don't know what that relationship's going to be we can't really predict whether that will be a strong connection or not um but so I feel like the siblings are another way to kind of create some sense of self a genetic biological sense of self for my son and I really hope those other parents put themselves on the register and I know that Varta is planning and I don't think they've done this yet but they're planning to do a bit of campaign to get people's awareness raise people's awareness about what the benefits are for your child and to encourage people to join the voluntary register and we're so lucky in Victoria that we have this voluntary register and we can register and potentially find out who these people are so that's my little rant that's a good rant. I think I'd read that most donor conceived children and they don't mind so much that they don't have a relationship with the donor, but when they learn that they have siblings, they wish they'd had a relationship earlier. And I know there are people waiting for their children to drive that, but they're going to be so much older before they do that. And then by that stage, they might regret not having them earlier. So yeah. I just have to get around to my paperwork. So I'm the. I'm I know sorry. it is tricky. I understand that impulse to say, well, my kid will make the decision. I can, I can see that side of it. Totally. But it's like by the time they make that decision, have they missed out on so many years of being able to have a relationship with them because they don't yeah, know what they don't know. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if it necessarily hurts to open that door, you know. I don't, I don't think it does hurt to open that door. And, yeah. and the other benefit of doing it early is if you do discover that perhaps there are people who are problematic to have in your children's life, your child's not going to be terribly wounded about those relationships ending because they won't really understand what they were in the first place. So, you know, if you meet up with someone once or twice and think, oh, God, that person is like a, I don't know, insert whatever is the opposite of your <laughs> belief system and, you know, they're insane in some way and I just don't think I want to have them around my child. Like you can kind of politely exit out of that um, and your child will be none the wiser necessarily because, they may only be a one-year-old or a two-year-old, so they're not going to suddenly be grieving the loss of this person in their life. Um, so I think that's beneficial. And they say that about meeting donors too, that if you do it early, if you sort of think, oh, I don't know if I want this guy around, or I don't want, really want to be friends with him, your kid is not going to be necessarily as upset if you, you know, change your mind when they're 15 or something. Anyway, it's just an interesting thought experiment, I guess. Yeah, and for most of you listening you can just ring your clinic or well, most clinics anyway, and they can tell you how many donor siblings, not necessarily anything about the families, but just how many there are. And then once you're on Varta, if you've got the same donor, you can be connected. And it's quite a process to actually get that connection. So it's not just here, have an email address, but there's some counselling things involved as well, isn't there? Yeah, they mediate that. And you can decide whether you want to share your email with that person or your phone number. You don't have to. You can stay very, so you can keep things that are very 
safe distance until you feel comfortable. You can kind of exchange emails via barter and then when you feel ready, you know, if you want to or if you think, no, I don't feel ready, you know. So I think that's great that they do that. They keep it at quite a distance so you can sort of control the process to some degree. I just wish every state had that. So we're very lucky in Victoria. So if you were look, if you were to look back now, is there anything that you think you would do differently on your journey? Is there anything I would do differently? Well, you know, I probably would have saved more money before I'd started this process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wouldn't, but then I probably wouldn't have had an artistic career that doesn't help you save money. Um, I think, you know. The biggest thing as a parent, and this is not really sort of about solo parenting, sort of about parenting in general, is just how much pressure we put on ourselves as parents and how empty we feel and how, like, we feel we're never doing enough and we should always be doing more. And, you know, it starts with, like, tummy time. Are we doing enough tummy time? And then, it, you know, it progresses to the next milestone, the next milestone. And now that I look, you look back at all of those milestones, you think, who cares? You know, like... <laughs> So what if I didn't do enough tummy time? My child is now walking, you know. So <laughs> I think sometimes it feels so, the stakes feel so extreme in every at every stage of their life and you just think, oh, I'm really failing in some way. And I wish, I really wish we could kind of lift some of that guilt away from ourselves and some of that sense of, as mothers especially, that we're not doing a good enough job. I think it's very much... A generational thing our, our parents parented very differently and there's this great book that I read called Small Animals by Kim Brooks which is all about sort of parenting in the age of anxiety and the premise of the book is she left her kid in her car in the car park for a couple of minutes in America at a Walmart because she had to run in and get something and she was running to the airport and someone took a photo and she got arrested and had to go through the court system for a number of years she didn't have to go to jail, but she did have to go through a, like, prosecution kind of system, and it was really harrowing. And from that premise, she examines sort of all of the anxiety around parenting and all the ways we should be parenting and what, and what society tells us and how, you know, we do a million activities with our children now and we keep trying to keep them as stimulators, you know, all these things. And just and reading that book was so fascinating and really, at least for a few weeks, made me kind of relax. And I just thought, oh, we just... We just all need to chill out. You know, mm-hmm. There's, I heard Annabelle Crabb talking on their podcast, Chat 10 Looks 3, about how there's that dad's podcast, I think it's called How, how Dad's Dad or something, Hamish and Andy, and, and Annabelle Crabb said it's just, there's just such a startling lack of guilt that you hear in the fathers being interviewed. And I thought, oh, it's so true. We're like we're carrying so much guilt. And, you know, I think especially the solo mums I know, we did this so intentionally. We do, we work so hard and I think the women I see around me doing this are doing such a good job and, they're, you know, they're striving so hard to be good parents and do all the right things and, you know, we're really doing the best we can and most parents are doing the best they can. You know, yeah, there's some terrible parents in the world, you know, people have had terrible parents, but I think most parents are well-intentioned and are doing the best they can and... So I sometimes I just wish I could give myself a break. That's mm-hmm. what I would do differently. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alicia. And if anyone is on the fence about whether they should pursue becoming a solo mum, is there any advice that you'd give them? Well, I have a book coming out in April. 
<laughs> called Inconceivable. It's a memoir that I wrote, which I think explores a lot of that question of whether or not to do this mm. um, because I agonised over the choice for so long. And it's interesting I'm I'm very hesitant to say to people, you should absolutely do it, like follow this path, like, you know, go ahead and do it. I, I always kind of caveat it, I think, with think about who your support network is. Think about who your support network could become if you don't have family nearby. Um, who can you rely on? You know, how are you going to do this financially? Like think it through. Uh, how are you going to do it emotionally if you have to go through rounds of IVF? Just... I, you know, I'm I'm hesitant to give people advice and say absolutely do something or don't do something in life because I do think it's such an individual choice. Of course, I don't regret it, and I'm so glad I did it. But I, I do want people to, I think, think about those main factors. I mean, and the main factor really is support, isn't it? Who's who's going to support you? How are you going to how are you going to do this? How are you physically going to do it? Um, physically, financially, emotionally, going to do it. And those things do need to be thought through. I don't think I had thought those through to the absolute end point. Like I had sort of ideas about them and they sort of evolved as they went along. You don't have to have a, like, you know, a spreadsheet where you've covered off everything before you start. But I think it's just good to consider those things yeah. because, yeah. And I think for me it came down to I just wanted wanted it so badly and, some people don't want it so badly and in a way I envy them. I think how nice to have, <laughs> you know, and to not feel so wedded or not feel like the desire to have a child is kind of almost sending you a little bit mad because mm. I think that baby fever can feel sort of insane-making sometimes. So, I mean, on the, on the other hand, those people might say, but then it's harder for me to make a decision because I don't know if I really want this. And I get that too. I can see how that would be torturous as well, to sort of be in the middle, like maybe I do, maybe I don't. Oh, you know, I understand that. Um, yeah, but you can only kind of inch towards each decision, each step of the way and kind of see how do I feel now? How do I feel now? You know, I went to the fertility specialist. How do I feel now? You know? that's sort of how decision-making happens in a way. It's sort of a myth, I think, that we, like, bolt from the blue and then we just decide overnight and we, like, go out and buy the turkey baster. It's like, no, nobody does that. It's, like, decisions are incremental and, you know, there's, as Esther Perel, the therapist, says, like, being an adult is about being able to live with ambivalence. So it's about being able to hold two opposing opinions at the same time. Like, Life could be great without a baby. Life could be great with a baby. Like those two things are both true and there's always a parallel life that you didn't lead, you know. Or sliding doors. Yeah. So, and it's being able to live with that, to live with the fact that like you're always going to feel a slightly torn about your life in some way. There's always going to be something that you could have done or you didn't do. or And so I think that makes you feel a bit calmer when you realise, oh, it's okay, there's no perfect decision. It's a long way of saying I don't have any advice I mean I have advice but I don't tell people what to do <laughs> but if you want some advice then uh, pick up your book and see <laughs> your view on that way <laughs> yeah exactly just um please buy my book <laughs> and what was it called again it's called inconceivable uh heartbreak bad dates and finding solo motherhood is the subtitle and it's coming out in April 
and there's going to be a pre-launch event in March at the Wheeler Centre if people are interested in going to that and then the actual launch will be in April if you're in Melbourne. Brilliant and I'll put a link to the book so everyone can easily find it and purchase and read it. Well thank you so much for sharing your story tonight Ali it was really a great um, I think it's especially inspiring for anyone with that more artistic career and passion to see that it can all be done and to, to follow your dreams and you can make gorgeous little life that you've got with little Quinn thank you this was a really great interview you asked good questions i'm alicia and this is the no need for prince charming podcast bringing you stories of australian solo mums who created their own happy ending if you like what you heard please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier bye for now